On the evening of October 25, 1918, a Canadian Pacific ship carrying over 350 people sank in the frigid waters of Alaska's Inside Passage. Through a combination of human error, natural power, and hubris, this would go on to become the worst loss of life in a maritime incident in the entirety of the Pacific Northwest. Yet few people have ever even heard of it. This is the story of the SS Princess Sophia. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this is Canadian Disasters. To understand the importance of the Sophia, we have to go all the way back to 1885. On November the 7th of that year, the ceremonial last spike was driven in at Craigalaki, British Columbia. This marked the completion of a single train line connecting British Columbia with the eastern provinces of Canada. Considered a feat of engineering and completed four years ahead of schedule, the CPR was on track to becoming one of the more profitable companies in Canada. In keeping with this, the builder of the Canadian Pacific Railway, a man named Sir William Cornelius Van Horn, then turned his attention further eastward, or westward, depending on where you look at it. But what he wanted to do was connect Canada with the Far East. He negotiated with the British government, and by 1887, he had started preparations for what would eventually be known as the Canadian Pacific Steamship Company. By the end of that decade, the CPR had ships docking in Hong Kong. It was a fruitful venture, which led them to make an agreement with the British government to carry mail from Britain to Hong Kong. This agreement fostered the building of the first of the Empress ships, of which Empress of Ireland is the most infamous. While the success of the Empresses was impressive, a growing need was emerging closer to home. As the CPR helped to bring in new waves of hopeful immigrants, the need for a regular sailing between Vancouver and Vancouver Island emerged. The CPR was only too glad to help, fighting off other companies for the privilege. Those included companies like the Grand Trunk and Union Steamship Company and the Alaska Steamship Company, among others. After a few years of infighting, CPR would emerge victorious, becoming well-known for providing comfortable, safe passage within the Salish Sea and all the way up to Prince Rupert. This all changes in 1896. In August, a group of prospectors discover gold in Rabbit Creek, a tributary of the Klondike River in Yukon Territory. A man named George Carmack takes the claim, as he fears his brother-in-law, a man named Skookum Jim, wouldn't have the claim be recognized given his indigenous heritage. What follows is a frenzy. By the time the first ships dock in Seattle and San Francisco carrying the gold, people are desperate to get their hands on more of it. Over a 100,000 people make their way to the Yukon, hoping to strike it rich. Now, of the various ways to reach the gold, the most popular route was through Alaska's Inside Passage. But given that few people had wanted to venture up there before, there weren't many official routes. In many cases, if a ship could float, it could be commandeered to head north, even if that meant being captained and crewed by drunk people. And yes, that is a real thing. I may do a mini-episode on one of the worst of these ships at a later date. 
CPR sees this rush and decides to capitalize on it. They launch routine steamship service up to Skagway, which was the gateway to the Yukon in 1901. This helped to connect potential prospectors to the famed White Pass and Yukon Railroad, which would get them all the way to Whitehorse, where they could then hire a riverboat to take them up to Dawson City and the gold. Now, other than the railway, the only way to reach Skagway was by sea. And even if the gold rush had by this time reached a zenith, there was still plenty of mining to be done. The Inside Passage was not an easy route to sail in those days. It was a given that delays from needing to be pulled either out of a sandbar or rescued from smashing into rocks were part and parcel from West Coast travel. Indeed, the year CPR starts its steamship service, the SS Islander sank in the Lynn Canal just south of Juneau after hitting an iceberg. It was quite foggy that August, and the captain insisted on going full steam ahead. The Lynn Canal is actually not so much a canal as it is an inlet. It is North America's deepest fjord, with depths reaching up to 610 meters. It connects Juneau with the small towns of Haines and, a little further up, Skagway, which is 185 kilometers north. Now, near the southern end of the canal, things narrow significantly. In fact, at one point, the entire passage narrows to only four kilometers wide. And at one point within that four kilometers, the Vanderbilt Reef. If the Lynn Canal isn't really a canal, the Vanderbilt Reef isn't really a reef. It's actually an underwater mountain. And the thing about mountains is uh, that they tend to have a peak. In the case of Vanderbilt, the peak is actually visible during low tide. It sticks out about four meters above the surface. During high tide, or particularly rough seas, it lurks just below the waves. Now, to make matters worse, there was no true navigational aid. There was a buoy, but it didn't have a light on it. So any ship traveling during poor weather or during the evening had no chance of seeing it. This was problematic. And in fact, CPR had actually petitioned the U.S. government to put in a lighthouse at that spot on Vanderbilt Reef back in 1917. But the government decided to put their money into busier areas, not seeing the need for that one spot up in Alaska which wasn't even a U.S. state at that point. To their credit, the government was a little bit right. The heyday of the Klondike had long since passed in 1918 when the Sophia departed Skagway. Towns which had ballooned to thousands of people were now looking at a few hundred up north, a couple thousand if they were lucky. It sounds harsh, but the winters in the Yukon would frequently see temperatures in the negative 50s. And while this is the land of the midnight sun in the summer, it is the land of near-endless darkness in winter. So once the last steamships departed, there weren't many options in the way of travel. To get from Dawson City to Whitehorse, after the lakes and rivers froze over in the winter, the only path was by horse-drawn sled. It took 10 days to make that 533-kilometer journey, and there were only two a month that operated. So, this meant the end of each summer season was packed with ships heading south to escape the harsh winter. And while normally the ships were pretty packed, the end of the 1918 season was particularly so, because it was the last call for many. Let's take some time to actually understand the Princess Sophia. 
She was ordered by the CPR in May of 1911 and was built at the Bow McLaughlin & Company shipyard up in Scotland. She was first launched a few months later on November the 8th for tests in the water. Her maiden voyage, which would take her across the Atlantic, down around the South American coast, and past Cape Horn in the dreaded Drake Passage before coming back up the West Coast, began on February 12th of 1912. She successfully weathered all the beatings the ocean threw at her and arrived in Victoria in May of that year. She was built to be hardy enough to withstand the frequent bad weather in the North Pacific. But make no mistake, she was a coastal liner designed to sail within 50 miles of land at most. With a double hull, she could even be counted upon to crash into a rock, but still not sink. She was known as a chubby ship, being unusually wide for the time. 245 feet long, she could hold up to 2,320 tons. Sophia was beloved. People who routinely took the inside passage often jockeyed to be on her. There was a full system of electrical power and lights, as well as wireless communication. Her staterooms were considered to be rather luxurious. Well, luxurious by Alaskan standards, which isn't that much, because <laughs> let's not forget people had been panning for gold in mosquito-infested areas and had been living in tents. It's also worth noting about Sophia, she didn't have deluxe staterooms, nor did she have any private bathrooms or baths. But... Of particular welcome to her guests was the excellent service the passengers had come to expect. It was almost entirely staffed by men, but there was one lady steward. Her name is given as either C.T. or C.H. Browning, and she used to help pass the time on board by knitting socks. She would then go on to raffle the socks to help support the boys at the front. People were eager to contribute to the raffle. They were less eager, if they won, to take the socks. So it came to pass that they'd just give the socks back to Browning, and she kept raffling off the same socks voyage after voyage. Not a bad way to help the troops. Going back to the service on board. Given that this is still the early 1900s, we do have to contend with a little bit of racism. The manifest for the ship tells us that there were 12 men of Chinese descent on board, their names have been lost to history. Princess Sophia's main route during the summer months was an eight-day Vancouver to Skagway schedule. All told, it's about 1,667 kilometers. The usual ports of call included Prince Rupert, Juno, Wrangell, and Skagway, among others. She started this route in 1913, but almost immediately she was beset with a few problems. On April 4th, 1913, almost a year to the day of the sinking of the Titanic, Princess Sophia hits an iceberg near Sentinel Island in the Lynn Canal. Other than needing a few repairs, she's okay. In November of 1913, at the tail end of the season, Sophia runs into something underwater and she needs assistance. After additional repairs, she sails again. January 19th of 1914, Sophia runs aground in Alert Bay, just off the northeastern coast of Vancouver Island. More extensive repairs are needed this time. 
But by May of 1914, Sophia is ready to resume operations. She sets off from Vancouver Harbor, only to hit the bottom of Vancouver Harbor and need immediate repairs. Those are four incidents within a year and a month, which is not a great track record. But come November 1914, the Princess Sophia is requisitioned by the British government to help in the war effort. She goes on to make the journey back around Cape Horn, this time bringing hundreds of men from the north to fight in France. After a few months of this, she's put back on her usual summer route. And that takes us to 1918. Now, it's been a relatively calm season for the Sophia. Sure, in September, she had hit a U.S. fisheries boat while docked in Juneau, but everyone was fine. It gets a little more worrying, though, on October 13th. The SS Princess Adelaide, which was one of Sophia's sister ships, runs aground and needs extensive repairs. So with Adelaide out of commission, there are no alternate ships in the CPR line to come to aid in a rescue attempt if needed. So warnings to captains are doubled. The CPR is very clear. Do not do anything dangerous. Now, of course, CPR had been saying this for years. In fact, in the event of inclement weather, the policy was to reduce speed in order to travel safely. What the CPR failed to do was mention how much speed needed to be reduced by. And this will become a factor later. When she departed Vancouver on October 17th, she was missing some of her crew. The chief engineer, a man named Archibald Alexander, requested an emergency leave after a telegram arrived from his wife in Victoria. His infant twin girls had come down with a deadly influenza, and one was not expected to survive. So he rushes off to be with his family. In another story, there are two brothers, Fank and Walter Gross, who found themselves in a little bit of a pickle the morning of the 17th. The previous evening, they'd been at a dance where many pretty girls were in attendance. Not wishing to leave the company of these bewitching beauties, they didn't realize the time until the sun started to rise. They dashed off to the dock where the Sophia was preparing for departure. Now running at a full sprint, they tried desperately to make it on board. Frank did. Walter did not. Walter watched as the Princess Sophia steamed away, not knowing just how lucky he was to have missed it. On board, some of the crew were in a bad state. It appears six members had contracted the influenza virus, causing Captain Locke to call upon the town physician once they reached Skagway. He had the crew in quarantine, as Second Officer Frank Gross informed Dr. Gaby when he tried to come aboard after they docked. Their symptoms sounded like influenza, and Dr. Gaby later commended the captain when he came to visit his office about how well Captain Locke was handling the situation. Captain Locke, he's an interesting man. A Nova Scotian, born in Halifax in 1852, Locke had spent most of his life on the seas. Though he had a family, including five children and a wife in Victoria, it was plain to everyone that he much preferred being on the water. He was known as one of the most accomplished seamen working inside the Inside Passage, and nearly everyone trusted his judgment. His own crew described him as strict, and with sometimes unreasonable demands. It was clear that he was a man who trusted his own instincts and mind before anyone else's. 
The one sort of nice anecdote about him is that he loved to read and write poetry, Robert Service being a particular favorite. Most school children in Canada will have heard of Robert Service, known for poems like The Shooting of Dan McGrew and The Cremation of Sam McGee. Now, Captain Locke once left a short poem for a little girl on one of his voyages who complained about having nobody there to say goodbye to her. But that's really the only nice anecdote we have about him. Other than the fact that he wears a toupee, so it seems he was a little bit vain. But the rest of the time, he appears gruff and stern, and he's a stickler for schedules. And as it turns out, he might not have actually had the right ship if he wanted to depart on time. The Princess Sophia was scheduled to leave Skagway at 7 p.m. on October 23rd. Even on a good day, this was tight. The train from Whitehorse on the White Pass got into Skagway at 5.30 p.m., and those passengers had to disembark from the train, walk down the street, get on the Sophia, and then have all their baggage handled through customs before it could also join them on board. This is not an easy task, and it was particularly difficult on the evening of the 23rd. The Princess Sophia normally had room for about 250 passengers, but during the final sailings before winter set in, this could be pushed to 300, and this was the case on the October 23rd sailing, along with about 65 crew members. Final tallies of who was on board for this final voyage vary. The most common number is given at 353 souls, but it's highly likely that number was actually closer to 375. Over 100 of these passengers came from Dawson City, Yukon, and there were some well-known people aboard from the town. The O'Brien family consisted of Father William, wife Sarah, and five children. There was rarely a newspaper in which one of the O'Briens wasn't mentioned. William was on the Dawson City Council and had even once been part of the Yukon legislature. He was also known for having a very beautiful baritone voice that he used to serenade churchgoers every Sunday. The O'Briens had packed up their things in Dawson and made their way down to Skagway. Now, William and Sarah hadn't told anyone, but they weren't planning to return to Dawson City. They were ready to make their fortunes elsewhere. Another famous Dawson couple aboard were the Eads. Murray Eads had made his fortune building the famous Royal Alexander Hotel in Dawson. He brought in lots of entertainment to the North, and if sometimes that entertainment included good-time girls, then so be it. Lula May was one of these good-time girls, having come up from Alabama to work as a dance hall queen. Now, Lula was famous in her own right. She even makes an appearance in the shooting of Dan McGrew. But she became infamous upon marrying her boss. Murray. Most of Dawson City's respectable society never warmed to her, but Lulu May and Murray did have a happy marriage, but Lulu was not so happy at the prospect of heading south. Having come up to Dawson on one of the barely floating ships at the height of the gold rush, she'd never wanted to return south and have to go through that again. Murray had also never been south since he made his fortune, but the two were ready for a new adventure. Lulu had a bad feeling about the journey, though. She convinced Murray that they needed to change their wills. Before this change, if either of them had died, their estate would go to the other. 
Now that they were both traveling together, Lulu and Murray changed their wills so that the bulk of the estate would go to Lulu's sisters. Lulu's unease also meant that she kept her most valuable jewelry, diamonds, gold, and gems valued at over $5,000, in a canvas bag that she kept tied around her neck. She was not willing to part with it even for a moment. Walter Barnes is another Dawson City man making the journey south, but he was one of the few planning to return. The reason he was going to Vancouver was to accompany his faithful horse, Old Billy. Now, Old Billy was a stark white stallion, and he had been with Barnes for 18 years. And in those years, he had hauled thousands of tons of gravel and gold through a tunnel on Barnes's stake. Billy was getting old, though, and couldn't do the work as well as he could back when he was young. In most cases up on the Klondike, when an animal no longer served its purpose, most would be shot. If they weren't shot, they were sent to the slaughterhouse or just left alone to die. But Walter didn't want to do that to his loyal horse, so he found him a farm in southern B.C. where Billy could retire and eat grass for the remainder of his days. Billy was one of the 24 horses that were in the hold, along with five dogs. Another traveler coming from Dawson was a man named John Maskell. He worked as an entertainer and was particularly well known for his recitations of Robert Service poems. Pretty much everybody at the time up in the Yukon were big fans of Robert Service. He was looking forward to returning home to England so that he could finally marry his fiancée, a Miss Dorothy Burgess. There are a few other passengers on the Sophia who weren't from Dawson, but deserve a mention. Among these are Mr. and Mrs. Walter Harper. Walter Harper was of mixed Irish and Koyukon descent. He'd been the first person to summit Dunali in 1913. He met his wife, Frances Wells, while he was recuperating from an illness. She happened to be his nurse at the hospital in Fort Yukon. Their travel on the Princess Sophia was meant to be the first part of their honeymoon. You see, Walter was heading to Philadelphia to attend medical school. Another woman who felt deeply uneasy about the journey was Eileen Winchell. She and her husband Al lived in Iditarod, Alaska, where Al worked for the mining company there. Eileen was originally from California, and she grew ill in the cold wilderness of Alaska, and another winter would have weakened her health even further. She and Al decided she should head down to visit her family and escape the worst of it. But before she departed, Eileen had a series of dreams about being trapped in dark water. She made Al promise to bury her next to her mother in California if something happened to her. Al agreed. She made the journey to Skagway, but by the time she reached the Sophia, she was so weak, crew members had to help her aboard. And the final person we're going to mention is a man named Oris McQueen, and he was leaving his station post at Fort Gibbon, Alaska. He was going to go join the fight overseas. He traveled with a few army buddies, and they'd already had a tough journey just getting to Skagway. At one point, their riverboat managed to hit a sandbar for the 11th time, and this made an 11-day journey take 19. So by that point, he was ready for the comforts of a ship. 87 employees of the White Pass and Yukon Railway were also aboard. They were taking advantage of a promotion the CPR had. While normally a first-class ticket cost about $37.50, or about $950 today, 
any White Pass employee could get it for $22, or about $4.50. And given that the work was done for the season, many jumped at the chance. All told, there were 50 women and children on board, along with the 24 horses, 5 dogs, and numerous pieces of luggage. There was more luggage than usual. Because this was the last sailing, many people from the North were sending Christmas packages to their loved ones fighting in France. And if you add that to the people fleeing the North and bringing their lives with them, the ship was stuffed to the brim. There were a few special packages on board as well. The Wells Fargo Bank was reducing their operations in Alaska and requested to have $62,000 worth of gold bars placed on board. Because the Sophia did not have a safe for valuables such as this, it was kept in the chart room. The chart room also held four nondescript mailbags. These weren't filled with holiday well-wishes, though, but another $70,000 worth of gold. After the sinking, these special packages would be among the first to be brought up. Now, one story that stuck out to me while I was researching this episode is a little more than a footnote. One man whose name has been lost had actually planned on disembarking in Skagway to spend the winter up north. However, it seems there was some problem with his passport and paperwork, and he was denied entry. So as such, he was not allowed to leave the ship and was headed back to Vancouver. I can't imagine being trapped on the ship when you weren't supposed to be there in the first place. At 10 p.m., three hours behind schedule, the ship readied for departure. It pulled away from the dock at 10.10 p.m., heading out into the darkness of the Lynn Canal. As they sped away from Skagway, snow began to fall. One captain would later say it was the earliest in the season he'd ever seen snow. And it was coupled with a dense fog. I've been fortunate enough to sail the Inside Passage. When I went, other than heavy rains, the seas were calm when I left Skagway. In places, the water was so calm, it looked like a mirror. But I was struck by how close the land seemed to be, as if I could reach out and put my hand into the waterfalls we passed. There was some fog, but it was high above us, obscuring the mountaintops I knew must be there. Now, if that's what I saw on a day of relatively good weather, I can't even imagine the obfuscation the chill that the lookouts must have faced keeping an eye out for errant icebergs. The fog made determining the position of the ship more difficult as well. There was no way of using landmarks for help, nor the usual method of dead reckoning. Instead, a junior officer was hoping to use a compass once they passed Sentinel Island, banking on the fact that they would be able to see Sentinel Island. With not much else to do, Captain Locke ordered the ship's whistle to sound. As soon as it did, he began to count, waiting for the time it took for the whistle's echo to return from shore. Once he'd done this twice, Locke felt comfortable in giving themselves a position, and he adjusted the ship to where he believed they were. Unfortunately for the Sophia, they were off from where Locke believed the ship was by about a kilometer and a half. That smaller distance was to prove deadly. Locke had sailed the inside passage hundreds of times. He was confident. Confident enough to sort of follow the CPR's rules. 
The top speed of the Sophia was 14 knots, and the Vanderbilt Reef is 48 kilometers from Juneau. So the best guess we have, based on where the ship ended up, is that the ship was averaging 11 knots per hour as it left Skagway that night. During the later inquest into the disaster, many captains said that had it been their ship, they would have taken it down to eight, maybe seven knots. But Locke had a schedule to keep, and he was already behind. If anybody aboard tried to reason with him to slow the Sophia down, we may never know. At 2.10 a.m., the ship crashed into the top of the Vanderbilt Reef, the steel hull screaming as it hit the hard rock. Many passengers were thrown from their berths. Most of the crew were flung to the deck. Due to the high velocity of when they hit the reef, the ship got itself wedged within a channel, and the first hull was breached. Thanks to a letter found later from the soldier Oris McQueen, we know passengers aboard the Sophia began to panic. He described seeing women in nightclothes screaming in the hallways, while one particular woman began putting on her most formal outfit and dragging a life vest over top of it. And given the strict codes of morality, we've got to applaud this woman's instinct for survival, because she pulled the nightgown off while he watched. Now, most people began making their way to the promenade deck where the lifeboats were. You see, the liners of the world had learned from the Titanic's mistakes. Even with the additional passengers and crew, there were more than enough rescue devices for every single person on board. And back in the bridge, the crew awaited the orders to swing out the lifeboats and prepare them for launch. But the order to launch didn't come that night. We can only surmise that Locke had another tragedy in his mind when he made this decision, that of the SS Clallam. There's going to be a future episode about the Clallam, but I'll detail right now what about it made Locke so scared. You see, when it looked as though the Clallam might flounder, the captain ordered the women and children into lifeboats. Once those lifeboats reached the water, they were quickly overtaken by the powerful waves. Those on board could only watch in horror as the women and children began to drown. Locke did not want the same thing to happen to his passengers. Sending them out onto lifeboats in the snow and fog seemed too big a risk for him. A few minutes after the crash, wireless operator David Robinson springs into action. He starts by radioing the nearby ship Cedar for help. They know Cedar has enough space to take every single passenger and crew member aboard. He then messages the CPR agent in Juno to let them know about what's going on and to ask them to get more help. So the agent first learns about the Sophia at 2.15 a.m., and he leaps into action, because it's up to him to pass the message further to Victoria, where the headquarters of the CPR are located. And this is no easy task. The cables in Alaska that helped to convey these messages... Yes, they had suffered a great failure in the past few weeks, and power had only recently been restored. There was a huge backlog of messages waiting to be sent, so CPR would be woefully unaware of what was happening with the Sophia. At one point, the relay of a message from the ship to headquarters in Victoria took a staggering 23 hours. Agent Lowe alerts the still-sleeping town of Juno, and a few smaller vessels begin preparing to go to the aid of the Sophia. Among these are the Estabeth and the Amy, 
Estabith will be one of the first to arrive to the Sophia at 8 a.m. As the Sophia waits for aid, Locke's crew point out the oil slick already forming at the back of the ship. Although Sophia had originally been designed to be coal-burning, once she reached Vancouver, she was switched to be oil-powered. This would prove particularly disastrous. The next challenge presented to the Sophia is the incoming high tide. Captain Locke is unsure if the tide will be enough to move Sophia from her current position and dash her further against the rocks. But by the time the high tide hits at 5 a.m., they are still stuck. Now, as the Estabeth finally reaches Sophia, engineer Robert Wakeley notices the oil slick in the water. The Estabeth manages to get a workboat within 50 meters of the Sophia, close enough to have a conversation via megaphone. Locke is asked whether he wants help in taking the passengers off the ship by lifeboat. At this point, the seas are relatively calm. The snow has stopped. But Locke declines, asking the ship to stay close by, but he thinks that they will wait for a larger one to come and rescue more passengers. It seems that Locke thought that the fewer trips the passengers had to take in a lifeboat, the better. Now, Wakely wholeheartedly disagrees with this. He would later tell the inquiry that it would have absolutely been possible to get all of the passengers off the ship safely at that time, and that indeed there was about a six-hour window when it was safe enough for all of them to disembark. But that time will come and go. It seems that there was one attempt to send passengers off the ship. Around 2 p.m. on the 24th, Wakely sees about 15 passengers some carrying hand luggage, come to the shell door of the Sophia and begin climbing down into a waiting lifeboat. Once they are in, crew begin lowering the lifeboat inch by inch. It would have been bitterly cold in the lifeboat, but, but one can imagine the passengers were probably glad for the distraction. Less than a meter from the sea, the lifeboat halts. Wakely then watches in amazement as the lifeboat is winched back up to the Sophia, and all of the passengers climb back up the ladder and back aboard. We'll never know if Locke decided the risk was too great to let those passengers grow. We know he had Robinson radio to everyone that they were waiting for larger vessels to come and help, and that he did want all of his passengers to be on one ship, if possible. From another message, we know Locke was looking at the barometer on board, and on seeing it rise, he believed that they had weathered the worst of the storm that they'd passed through the night before. He would be wrong. From Oris McQueen's letter, we know that nobody was gravely injured during the initial crash. Indeed, by the afternoon of the 24th, most people were simply bored. The ship was running out of sugar for their tea, and they were fast running out of fresh water. The conservation of the water for only drinking purposes had begun. Wakely, our engineer aboard the Estabeth, also recalled watching couples strolling along the promenade and the piano keys tinkling within the social lounge. I can imagine there were quite a few card games played and that the men whiled away their weight in the smoking lounge. One man, however, began to feel uneasy. John Maskell, our entertainer, couldn't seem to shake the feeling of impending doom. He spent the afternoon of the 24th composing a letter to his fiancée. I want to read it to you in its entirety here. 
He begins the letter by saying, Shipwrecked off coast of Alaska, USS Princess Sophia, October 24th, 1918. My own dear sweetheart, I am writing this, my dear girl, while the boat is in grave danger. We struck a rock last night, which threw many from their berths. Women rushed out in their night attire. Some were crying, some too weak to move, but the lifeboats were swung out in all readiness. But owing to the storm would be madness to launch until there was no hope for the ship. Surrounding ships were notified by wireless, and in three hours the first steamer came, but cannot get near owing to the storm raging and the reef which we are on. There are now seven ships near. When the tide went down, two-thirds of the boat was high and dry. We are expecting the lights to go out at any minute. Also the fires. The boat might go to pieces, for the force of the waves are terrible, making awful noises on the side of the boat, which has quite a list to port. No one is allowed to sleep, but believe me, dear Dory, it might have been much worse. Just here there is a big steamer coming. We struck the reef in a terrible snowstorm. There is a big buoy near, marking the danger, but the captain was to port instead of to starboard of the buoy. I made my will this morning, leaving everything to you, my own true love, and I want you to give a hundred pounds to my dear mother, a hundred pounds to my dear dad, one hundred pounds to dear wee Jack, and the balance of my estate, about three hundred pounds, to you, Dory dear. The Eagle Lodge will take care of my remains. By late afternoon, there were more passengers on deck, and they were clutching suitcases. Another boat, this one the Peterson, comes along the Sophia at the next high tide. It seems like an excellent time for a rescue, because the snow is light and the sea is relatively calm. But Locke never gives the order for them to help. The most he does is ask the Estabeth and Peterson to remain close by until the bigger ships arrive. And the first of those bigger ships does at 5 p.m., the King and Winge. By the time they arrive, though... The storm has worsened again. They can barely see the lights of the Sophia through the gale, but the king in winch stays nearby until it's no longer safe to do so. Then they, along with the Estabeth and the Peterson, take shelter in nearby protected inlets. By 8 p.m., the blessed cedar arrives on the scene. But the storm is fully raging now, with a strong northwest wind tossing whitecaps. The cedar can just make out the lights of the Sophia in the storm. Part of the reason they waited for the cedar is the cedar also had wireless aboard. So the cedar radios the Sophia, asking if they want to attempt to rescue or whether cedar should anchor somewhere safely for the night. Locke tells the cedar that there's nothing they can do this evening and that they should go and anchor and stay safe. Mere moments after this message arrives to the cedar, the lights of the Sophia go out all at once. They have lost power. The cedar steams for a nearby cove, leaving the passengers to a dark, cold, and terrifying night. We can assume the engineers on board, none of whom were usually in charge, were really missing Archibald as they worked frantically to restore some power to the ship. Meanwhile, those who had been unlucky enough to be in one of the interior passageways when the power went out were now having to make their way down the corridors through feel alone, touching the walls to figure out where doors might be in order to find the well-lit social rooms 
well lit because of skylights. We can assume that they huddled together for warmth during the snowstorm, shivering against the cold and gazing at the strange orange the sky turns during a blizzard. The winds would have howled against the sides of the ship, rattling the skylight, and as the waves crashed against the Sophia, that horrible screech of steel against rock would have made any sleep difficult. By 10 p.m., some wireless communication is back, thanks to an extra battery. Robinson will remain awake through the night, communicating with the Cedar and the CPR line. He radios that they hope the next rescue attempt will happen with the coming of dawn. And dawn breaks on the 25th with no change in the storm. The Cedar battles its way through the blizzard towards the Sophia, but there's little chance of a rescue attempt. Not for lack of trying. They actually go so far as to attempt to put a line between the ships for passengers to be strung along in a sort of zipline fashion. But the winds are too strong, and the likelihood of being dumped into the frigid waters too high. Luckily, the power does return to the ship at 11 a.m., and the passengers seemed to be happy to have some warmth again. With no ships able to mount a rescue attempt, all of the rescue ships head back to safer coves. They all felt assured that since the Sophia had been stuck on the reef for over a day now, she'd be fine overnight. And indeed, at 4.30 p.m., Locke sends out a message saying that everything is okay on board, that they are still stuck, but will hopefully try later for another rescue attempt. What happens next is a mystery. At 5 p.m., only a half hour after Locke has assured everyone that they're fine, the exhausted Robinson, who has not slept since the Sophia collided with the reef, types out a frantic message. For God's sakes, hurry. The water is coming in my room. The theater is now equally frantic, trying to figure out if they can safely make it back to the ship in this blizzard. After a few more messages back and forth, Robinson sends his final one at 5.20 p.m. All right, all right, but you talk to me so I know you're coming. Here's what most experts believe happened. As the tide began to rise a little after 4.30 p.m., the Sophia once again began to twist against the rocks. Only this time, she twisted to such an extent that her bottom began to rip, causing water to gush in. The water breached the second hull, and very soon after that, the boilers ceased to work. It is unlikely that the boilers exploded, given the quantity of oil found on the surface of the water and the lack of burns on any of the victims. It does not seem like there was time or perhaps inclination from Locke to put forward an evacuation attempt. While most lifeboats were found far away from the ship, in most cases, experts believed that they happened after the sinking. There was time enough, though, to recognize some danger, as many of the victims were found wearing life jackets. Well, those initially found. Most watches of the passengers on board were stopped at 5.50 p.m. By the next dawn, the storm had blown over, leaving a cloudy sky and calm seas. The cedar raced to Vanderbilt Reef, hoping to find the ship. And they did, sort of. You see, all that was visible was the ship's mast, sticking straight out of the water. The cedar immediately went into action, hoping to find survivors. None were found. 
It took almost the whole day for the first bodies to be located. Among them were four women who had lashed themselves to a flotation device and were found on a rocky beach a few kilometers from the wreck. All told that day, 162 bodies were found on nearby shores. One of them was second officer Frank Gross. He was found on a beach with a large gash on his forehead next to a lifeboat. There's some speculation that he may have actually survived the sinking, only to strike his head on a rock when he attempted to beach the lifeboat. There are many people who are not found that day, including Eileen Winchell, who was so determined to be buried next to her mother in California. The bodies that were found are brought to Juneau, and a Northwest Mounted Police officer, one A.L. Bell, comes down from Whitehorse to help with identification and also for checking the bodies. He later claims that of the 162 bodies he checked, only two died from drowning. The rest suffocated to death. Why suffocation and not drowning? The oil slick. The water around the Sophia was covered in oil. It seems as the desperate passengers hit the frigid waters of Lynn Canal, they were so shocked by the cold they made an involuntary gasp. That gasp allowed the oil to enter their mouths, where it then went down to coat their lungs, making it impossible to breathe. It would have been a terrible way to die. The same oil slick also affected local marine life, with hundreds of oil-soaked seabirds dying over the next few weeks. In the north, nearly everyone knew somebody who'd been aboard the Sophia. Nearly 13% of Dawson City was wiped out with the disaster. And the people of Juneau, many of whom knew passengers aboard, came together to help. They gave space to those who had come to identify the bodies, they fed and clothed the rescuers, and were big help in the newest challenge, coffins. Due to the influenza pandemic and the high death toll of the Sophia, there simply were not enough coffins for all the victims in Juneau. Caskets needed to be sent from all along the West Coast. Now, the strangest story about identifying a victim has to go to Orton Phillips, who was an American citizen. Having no family to call upon, two officers from Victoria, who had happened to arrest him for driving under the influence back in August, were called to confirm his identity, which they did. It was easy to identify Lula May Eads. She still had her canvas bag with all of her jewelry around her neck. With fewer than half of the victims found initially, the CPR put out a reward. $50 for anyone who could find a body. But Al Winchell didn't want to wait for that. His wife's last request rang in his ears. He made the long trek from Iditarod, and upon landing in Juneau, made the acquaintance of a diver named Selma Jacobson to look for her remains. It seems strange to find a diver, but it was possible to dive to the wreck in 1918. It had in fact already been done. Just two weeks after the sinking, the CPR had already paid salvage teams to head to the wreck and recover the Wells Fargo money and the mailbags full of gold. Wells Fargo got their money back, but the mailbags, which we know were recovered, mysteriously disappeared afterwards. 
perhaps even more mysterious? Even after this recovery, CPR continued to let people believe that the remainder of the bodies, 192 having been found at this point, had been washed up to sea, never to be seen again. And to be clear, in some cases, this did happen. Captain Locke's body was among those never recovered. But when the salvage team went down for the gold, they actually found body, and they brought it back to the surface. But the CPR was more interested in money than it was in the retrieval of bodies. And that takes us back to Al and Selmer. You see, a few weeks after that salvage operation, Selmer heads to the wreck, and he's shocked by what he sees. Doesn't take him long to find one body. And then he finds the bodies of all of the horses, including old Billy. Faithful to the last, though, Walter Barnes's body is actually discovered on the staircase leading to the animal hold. It seems in his final moments, he went to try and get old Billy out. Selmer is under specific instructions from Al. You see, Al went through CPR records and discovered that Eileen was in stateroom 35 aboard the Sophia. Selmer makes his way to the stateroom and is surprised to find two women's bodies there as he peeks in through the porthole. One's hair is tangled in that window, her head still resting on a pillow. The other woman is on the ceiling in a life preserver. He carefully smashes the glass, but is unable to open the window enough to enter. The next day, he returns with a saw, and he manages to get the body with the life preserver out. But the sleeping woman has vanished, presumably carried off by a current. Upon bringing the body to the surface, people in Juno identify her as Sarah O'Brien, the wife of William. It appears she went to help Eileen in the final moments, aware that the other woman was frail and alone. In total, Selmer ends up making five dives to the ship. But by the end, he was feeling apprehensive, going so far as to say seeing the bodies was getting creepy. With outsider evidence now pointing to the fact that most of the bodies left are in the ship and not out to sea, CPR is forced to begin their own recovery mission. It takes Al until July of 1919 to finally find Eileen. Records don't indicate where on the ship she was found, but we do know that she was one of the very last to be pulled from the wreckage. With the very last of his savings, Al takes her body to California and buries her next to her mother. What happens to him afterwards is unknown. There was a lone survivor of the wreck. On October 27, at Tees Harbor, 24 kilometers south of the wreck, people are shocked to see an oil-slicked, starving dog shivering on the beach. At first skittish with people, the dog wouldn't allow anyone to come nearby. Eventually, though, with the promise of food, he relents, and he allows a group of them to take care of him. Once he gets cleaned up, it's discovered that the dog was a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, a dog breed known for swimming long distances. Historians debate to whom the dog belonged on board the Sophia, but he was eventually named Tommy and sent to a family in Vancouver. Poor Tommy, though, developed a great fear of the water, 
yelping and cowering whenever he had to cross it. The CPR had sent one of the Sophia's sister ships up when they first heard about the disaster. They thought it would be to take most of the passengers down after Juno, but instead the Princess Alice was renamed the Ship of Sorrows. She sailed into Vancouver with the bodies, landing very late in the evening of November 10th, 1918. So late, there wasn't time to have any of the proper paperwork done. The next morning, families of the victims crowded around Pier D, where Princess Alice had docked. As the steady stream of caskets came ashore, only a few blocks away, a celebration was taking place. It was Armistice Day. The worst war the world had ever known was finally at an end. But the pain wasn't yet over for the families of the victims of the Princess Sophia. A ceremony for the dead was held on both the docks of Vancouver and Victoria when the Princess Alice landed. Seattle did not have a ceremony, even though there were quite a few passengers for whom it was their final destination. After that came the need to actually bury the bodies, which was more difficult than usual. Due to the rising death toll from influenza, there was a serious lack of grave diggers in Vancouver. But a group of former Klondike participants got together and formed a committee, and then they dug the graves of the Sophia victims themselves. The only ones that they refused to dig were those of the twelve Chinese men on board. The CPR forced the local Chinese community to take care of their bodies, regardless of whether they had actually been from Vancouver or not. Sixty-six of the Princess Sophia victims rest in the Mount Pleasant Cemetery in Vancouver. The O'Brien family and John Maskell are among them. The CPR was quick in doling out money to the kin of the workers on board. They gave precious little, though, to the victims' families. An inquiry into the disaster was called for, and it started on January 6, 1919, at the courthouse in Bastion Square, Victoria, a building which now houses the BC Maritime Museum, where you can actually learn about the Princess Sophia. Now, many of those who had come to the aid of the Sophia actually came to testify at this inquiry. And given that they were nearly all American and therefore had no obligation to actually come, their eagerness belied some of the guilt that they'd been feeling that they couldn't save the victims. Many captains of the smaller vessels believed firmly that there had been ample rescue time during the late morning and early afternoon hours of October 24th. Some of them also argued that Locke was in the wrong for speeding down the canal in inclement weather. Knowing that Captain Ledletter and the rest of the Cedar crew who had done so much would likely have damning testimony about the ship, the CPR lawyers actually delayed the trial for over a month in the hopes that those aboard the ship would be unable to give testimony. And this sort of worked, even though the Cedar crew did eventually come to give their accounts of what had happened. But the CPR was finally able to get the judge to say that whatever had happened was an act of peril by the sea, and Captain Locke had made sound choices in keeping everybody aboard. However, nearly a decade later, another court would find the CPR guilty of negligence and force them to pay the victims' families. 
it wasn't nearly enough. The payments averaged out to just $2 a person. The sinking of the Princess Sophia was devastating to the North, signaling the tail end of the Klondike era. It is estimated that a full 10% of the non-Indigenous population of the Yukon was wiped out with the disaster. And yet, couched as it was between the growing influenza pandemic and the end of World War I, it didn't get much in the way of attention. Few people outside of Alaska or those with a deep love of maritime history know of it at all, and of the nearly 100,000 visitors that sail the Inside Passage each summer season today, perhaps only a handful know to look out at a navigational beacon tucked atop Ryanderbelt Reef. For yes, the U.S. government did end up installing a beacon there so that another tragedy like the Sophia would never happen again. The letters that John Maskell and Oris McQueen wrote were saved because each of them had tucked it into a protected coat pocket. They remain the only first-hand accounts we have from passengers aboard the Sophia. The ship's logbook was never found, believed to be swept out to sea along with their captain. It's possible that the following is a poem that Maskell recited to his fellow passengers, trapped in the dark the evening of the 24th, with the wind howling at them. This is L'Envoi, by Robert Service. You who have lived in the land, you who have trusted the trail, you who are strong to withstand, you who are swift to assail, songs I have sung to beguile, Vintage of desperate years, hard as a harlot's smile, bitter as unshed tears. Little of joy or mirth, little of ease I sing, sagas of men of earth, humanly suffering, such as all you have done, savagely faring north, sons of the midnight sun, argonauts of the north. Far in the land God forgot glimmers the lure of your trail. Still in your lust are you taught, even to win is to fail. Still must you follow and fight under the vampire wing, there in the long, long night, hoping and vanquishing. Husbandmen of the wild reaping a barren gain, Scourged by desire, reconciled unto disaster and pain. These my songs are for you, you who are seared with the brand. God knows I have tried to be true. Please, God, you will understand. That is the story of the SS Princess Sophia. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Canadian Disasters. True North. Strong and destructive. <laughs>